Welcome to the next episode of the In Development Podcast. My name is Mariah, and this is a podcast for all you city builders, city shapers, and city dwellers out there that care about driving change toward people-centered communities. On In Development, we talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We are presented by IDEA, the Infill Development and Edmonton Association, a nonprofit education and advocacy group bringing together like-minded people working to shape our city. Today's guest is very exciting for Mariah and I to talk to. It's uh, Dr. Robert Summers. We refer to him colloquially in the episode as Bob. Um, he's the Associate Director of the Urban and Regional Planning Program at the University, and he's also part of the Sustainability Scholars Program. I believe he's the director there as well. Um, he teaches currently at the University of Alberta in the Faculty of Science. He teaches a ton of planning courses. Currently, he teaches courses about municipal finance, sustainability, so he's really helping shape the next generation of planners. Um, just for everyone's reference, he currently teaches finance for planners, advanced finance for planners, Intro to Sustainability, Global Sustainable Development, Sustainable Development Goals, and Directed Study in Sustainability. So finance, sustainability, that's where Dr. Summers lives. He's also very, very active on Twitter, and he helps promote moving the city forward and moving city building conversations forward. He's uh, directly involved with the University Sustainability Council and highly recommend following him on Twitter. He's a great combination of uh, fun little hilarious quips as well as some really relevant information. We have a few things that we talk about in the episode that we want to define for you. The first is CIP. It's the Canadian Institute of Planners acronym. They are the overall regulating body for the planning profession in Canada. They have about 7,500 members according to their website and they've been doing this work since 1919 and that work is supporting and advocating on behalf of the planning profession both nationally and globally. They have a great uh, quarterly publication called Plan Canada. Uh, one of our previous guests, Jason Savixe, is a frequent contributor in that publication. It's a great little read. And um, my favorite part about CIP is that they throw a bitchin' conference every year, as well as a ton of other events related to World Town Planning Day and other uh, related planning events. So uh, for reference, this year, 2022, the national conference is going to be in Whistler, you will see me there. And that's always my favorite part about the conferences is that you get to explore some cities that you might not necessarily get to travel to um, and see a cool conference. Yeah. And the other definition that I wanted to bring up for you all today is upzoning. Uh, so this is something that you may have heard of before, but you may not have heard about it before. It means changing the zoning code for a specific property or area to allow for taller, denser buildings, or different types of development, for example, like commercial development. So uh, it's not just Edmonton that is looking at upzoning right now. It's actually most major municipalities across North America. Our zoning bylaws are all around North America are, are pretty outdated. I don't know if, if you know this, uh, but when one city does it, other cities tend to follow. Uh, there's been a lot of different studies on the effects of upzoning. And so Dr. Summers referenced one. Uh, we said it was from Boston. It turns out it's from Chicago. Uh, it's called Upzoning Chicago, the Impacts of Zoning Reform on Property Values and Housing Construction. This research was done by Yona Freemark, 
a senior research associate and the fair housing and markets practice area lead in the Metropolitan Housing and Communities Policy Center at the Urban Institute, which is really fantastic. He's got some really great things on his website. Go check it out. Uh, he clarifies that upzoning at the metro level is likely a good thing, but upzoning at a specific site or limited sites will increase the land values. And we get into that in today's discussion. So let's hear from Dr. Summers. So our guest today is uh, Dr. Robert Summers from the University of Alberta. Dr. Summers, how are you doing? Good, and you? Not so bad, not so bad. Glad to have you on. Thanks for asking. Bob, I have to start off with a tweet that you sent out on February 10th that I completely disagree with. Why do you hate Dave Tippett? Uh, why do I? Oh, Dave Hip- Tippett. Oh, this is, um, I, well, we, we've got our hour-long discussion set up here. Um, you know, I, I was in a conversation yesterday about this as well, because uh, someone else saw that. And uh, it, it's, I'm, I'm not actually that rational when it comes to hockey. So when I tweet about hockey, I absolutely, um, totally ignore rational thought and just go pure emotion. But I am pretty happy about the way they played the last two games. And I think Dave Woodcroft will get a lot more out of this team. So Yeah, I do want to talk, uh, all jokes aside, about the planning program. You were one of the first... Um, I guess, do they say founding fathers of the planning program at the University of Alberta? So it was really, for a long time, it was just me waving a flag. Um, and it, I'll tell you how it started. So it started with a conversation with Eric Backstrom. Uh, so at the time, Eric Backstrom was a member of the professional association. And this was well before it started, I don't know, 2007 or 2008. I was pretty new at the university. Uh, he indicated that there was this interest uh, or a need for an undergrad planning program. And I was, uh, it seemed like a good idea to me. So I started just pushing that idea. And I talked to everybody I could about it and kind of got a, a head nod at the university that, you know, we could advance the idea anyways. And uh, I was at a meeting with where Don Iveson was there. He was a counselor at the time. This was probably a year or two later already. And uh, I mentioned to him after I was, I was all nervous because uh, I, you know, it's my first time uh, meeting with counselors and I'm like, you know, hey, Don, you know, I've got this idea. I want you to hear about it. And uh, I talked to him about it and he's like, that's a great idea. And then he connected me with Simon O'Byrne. Um, and that's how that connection, which, um, you know, and both of these individuals now are longtime friends, but it's it's how it started. And so we huddled together in a um, room at Stantec and we schemed and contrived ways to sort of advance this. And then basically 2012, we launched the program as a, an undergrad degree. Uh, and then we uh, hired Sandeep Agarwal to come on as, as director. And uh, then a few years later, the master's program and PhD program. And here we are. And now uh, when I go to a public hearing, you know, I see the uh, on, on the admin side, I'll see some of our folks there who have been through our program. Uh, often on the applicant side, I'll see some. Uh, sometimes I see them come out as, you know, NGO, NGO representatives for community leagues and others. And uh, it's just, you know, tremendously rewarding to this is sort of my secret plan to take over things. Right. I just have all the planners who have gone through our school and I brainwash them and then they go forth and do great things. So. I was actually going to compare you to Dr. Frankenstein a little bit because you are creating some monsters there um, that hopefully don't come back and bite you later on in life. Absolutely. But it is kind of nice to see them kind of flourish after the program was started. Um, You glossed over it a little bit, but how do you even start 
a faculty at a university. How difficult was that process? Well, not a faculty, but a, a program or a school. Um, you know, it there's a whole load of bureaucracy involved. We, what I did is like, I just talked to everybody I, and I was new to doing anything like this. Now I would do it probably m- much more efficiently. But what I did is I, I met with development leaders. I met with uh, professional planners. I actually, I flew up to, there was a meeting of Northern leaders um, for Alberta uh, and I emailed them and said, I'd like to chat with them. And these are all the elected officials for Northern Alberta from all levels. So it's uh, MLAs, MPs and mayors. And I got the chance to present to them. That was big because you have, you know, 100, 150 people around who their communities lack at that time, they really lacked um, planners, and it was really hard to attract professional planners to smaller communities, um, even larger ones, looking at Wood Buffalo and others. And, you know, I got that group on board. And I, everyone I talked to, so this is my, now I can, I, I guess we're past the statute of limitations, I can expose my strategy. Everyone I talked to, whether it was an industry, I told them, you know, if you ever get a chance to talk to, if you're, you're, you're meeting with a minister, uh, or even an MLA or whatever, you know, let them know how important this program is. You know, it, uh, a little bit of time passed, and uh, I know that there was a conversation between the it was going through the official approval process but of course there's funding and other things needed and i know that there was a conversation at some point between uh, our provost and and the minister of advanced education and the minister of advanced education said yeah i've heard from everybody how important this program is and i was like yeah it worked you know that this strategy of just creating this background momentum for change and i mean the other thing was it was just a really needed thing and a really good idea. I mean, if it were a really stupid idea, probably people wouldn't have done that, but they were all on board. And so, you know, everyone who heard about the idea got behind it and did their little part of sharing that that information to the people who, who make those decisions or who have influence on those. Yeah, that's that's really clever marketing. I'm, I'm curious about how you market yourself to students as well. So um, kind of going through the bureaucracy and creating the program is one side, but then you need students to populate it. So how did you find kind of cohorts of students to uh, start the program and then get it uh, get it moving the way it is now. Planning is is really an exciting career. I mean, any aspect of city building. I'm I'm always intrigued by what engineers do and uh, developers and and so on. Like we engage with our cities or, or our communities every day, right? We walk out and people have opinions immediately about traffic or about whether we should clear our sidewalks better or whether we should build things differently. And people travel and they see different cities. So immediately you can grab people with that interest around those things. Then you can tell them, hey, you can make a career out of this. I mean, the other aspect is it's a good career. So when people graduate, um, most of them get employed in planning and and most of them go on to do interesting things and uh, have good careers. And so I also, you know, I'm part of a geography program as well. And there, I mean, nobody, nobody advertises for a geographer. Like, so you have to, it's a little more abstract, the process between the degree program and the eventual employment. And employment is good for people who graduate with these sort of uh, broad social science degree programs. Uh, but the, the pathway isn't as clear. But planning, I mean, they can just look and see that there's jobs advertised and that the degree they're entering in uh, has a, a job at the end of it. So there's often, um, like I said, both the passion for, for places and, and for communities is a big part of it. And then also that tie to their you know potential for direct employment after. So the program has, you mentioned, undergraduate, graduate, and PhD level courses and uh, and degrees that are offered now. Is that right? Yeah. And all of those are regulated or, um, yeah, regulated through the accreditation process with CIP. Is that right? The undergrad and master's are professional associations across North America don't regulate PhD programs. So. Okay, no, fair enough. So then uh, my, my question really is, you're starting this faculty from or this program, sorry, from scratch. 
but you do have kind of a standardized uh, approach. So how do you balance kind of creating a, uh, an Edmonton-focused planning program or an Alberta-focused planning program or a Western-focused planning program when it does have an element of standardization through uh, CIP? Yeah, you know, the standardization is actually really helpful. Um, and, and sometimes it frustrates people, but I, I really like it because it, it helps anchor the profession, essentially, um, and, and the academic discipline, those two things, the, the academic side and the professional side. Uh, unlike what I see in other social science um, related programs. So again, geography, I'll say, you know, they're fads, they come through and, and geography goes in the 1980s. Um, Marxism came along and everybody became a Marxist. And, and if you weren't part of that, you were almost kind of pushed out of the, the discipline uh, in many cases. And so having the having planning anchored in the profession, I think, is, is really valuable because it says you need this knowledge and, and these skills. And there's still lots of room then for, you know, academic um, criticism of the profession and to say, hey, maybe the way we do things isn't the best and, and there can be other ways of doing it. But you still have those anchor points that, that are really valuable. So that's one part. You know, the other part of your question is how, how do we make it Alberta specific? I think that that part's actually pretty easy because we draw so many Alberta examples and we have instructors who are professionals who, who work in uh, Alberta. Sometimes I think that where we could do better is having more stuff from outside. Although, you know, some of our professors are from other parts of the world and our, some of our professors do research in other parts of the world as well. So that comes into the classroom and gives students a little bit of that. You know, I always encourage students to travel too, because there's no better way to learn about other parts of the world than, than going there. So yeah, I, uh, I wanted to back up a little because I'm a product of your human geography planning uh, mashup. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I came in at a time where I was finishing my education degree. And so I wanted to take an after degree. And uh, the program was just on the cusp of creating an after degree. I, you saw a lot of my writing when I was I was a really bad student. Uh, I'm dyslexic in school. I love learning, but, but uh, standardized tests are not my strong suit. But I think one of the things that your program did really well was advertising because I was looking. I was looking for a way to get involved with the city on a broader scale. I loved teaching in a classroom, but I felt at that time that the Alberta curriculum was heading in a dangerous place, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to focus my my life on on that. So I wanted to help kids in a different way and. I went on the U of A's landing page and right smack down the first page was all about the planning program. And I, I don't know how, like, it didn't take me very long to find your information, but uh, we connected and you kind of got me hooked right away on what planning could do for a city. Uh, and it seemed like to me, Edmonton kind of had a gap in our planning knowledge. We had young planners in the city and we had very seasoned planners, but it seemed like there was kind of a missing link between the two. I don't know if that was part of the driving force of why everyone said we need a planning program here. Yeah. Um, so I'll just, you know, go back to what you started with. I think you were a very good student. At least that's my memory of it. So <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I don't remember specific assignments, but you were certainly keen and interested and, uh, uh, you've gone on to idea and, and made a tremendous difference, which is another one of those things I can be proud of, of the stuff that we do at the university. But, um, you know, just going to question that you or the, the comment you make about across Alberta, there were young planners and there were uh, essentially very senior planners who had been in, you know, for 20 or 30 years. And in those cases, um, that's what we heard a lot from people is that there was basically a gap. People would come here from other universities. So they would come here from Waterloo uh, or U of T or from uh, UBC 
and they would work for two years and they would gain their experience in Alberta. And then they would have enough experience that they could get a job back home. And then they would move back home. Now, you know, some ended up, they, they stuck out here and they, they stayed and, and they ended up being our, our sort of long timers, if you will. But the vast majority, so 80% of them would just return to back where they came from. So we would do all this training and it really frustrated. Those on the development side would tell me that they were frustrated because every time they'd come in, they'd be dealing with someone new who wasn't aware of, of the local context and often it would be you know, saying things like, well, back in Vancouver, we do this. And of course, our context is totally different. You know, you don't see any mountains here. You don't, you don't have the same types of issues. And even the the political landscape, the cultural landscape, uh, I mean, we all share lots of commonality across Canada, but there are differences from place to place, uh, people's preferences, uh, the legal system is different. So, you know, not having that, I think it, it would take years for people to get familiar with all of that here. And then they'd leave and it was really frustrating for everybody. So that was that was a story that was frequently repeated to me when I asked, you know, do we need this and why? Uh, and then that's a story that we shared a lot as well. Yeah, and I know uh, in taking the courses, you could see when people would come and teach, like uh, there was the professors that we had, uh, you, Dr. Collins, uh, Dr. Eggerwall. But then we would have people like Eric Backstrom, um, like Scott Mackey, like Travis Pollock that would come from industry and from the city and take time out of their day and, and try and uplift the program. And I think that's part of what's made the, the program so successful because I've seen people from my class. I feel like we're everywhere now. <laughs> it's easier to make change happen in our city and kind of move forward because there's uh, common connections. Yeah, you know, one of the things that we've been so fortunate in is um, uh, support. If if I need someone to teach on something, the first person I re- reach out to almost always says yes. You know, and if we need, um, we've had we've had industry groups take our our students on bus tours. We've had just tremendous support whenever we've. Uh, look to do something uh, we just put the call out and people are there uh, up until covid we ha- have our annual fundraiser that'll start again hopefully this coming uh, fall and um, loads of people come out and that helps us build our scholarship funds and yeah this is a really great community and there's really good relationship between the, the university and um, private industry and, and public uh, groups as and NGOs who are around. It's, it's really fantastic. It's always very positive. Yeah. And I think another great thing that the program uh, exemplifies is getting connected into the community. I remember uh, you specifically talking about getting involved in your community league and that helped my career tremendously, understanding like the problems that they're facing, the limitations that they have to work within uh, to build up their community who like ultimately they have the strongest connections to what works and what doesn't in their community. So yeah, anyways, I, I, I like to gush about the program <laughs> and I feel like Brian sometimes gets jealous. Yeah, you know, Ellen, I mean, community leagues are great because A, they deal with lots of real world stuff and B, they're always desperate for people to be on their board. So you could probably be a 12 year old and walk in and say, Hey, I want to be a part. And they'll be like, you're treasurer, um, you know? And uh, so when you're a university student who's studying uh, cities, they're really keen to have you on board. And that's a great spot to start because all of a sudden you're, you're in real world issues. And I don't, I don't think community leagues should be out there sort of um, uh, navigating too much around what should be built or not built in communities, but even things like the local soccer uh, league and, and um, aspects of the, the community, all of their infrastructure, structure and and what they provide from hockey rinks other things that's just it's absolutely gold for in terms of experience for 
young people getting started. And then you just move from there and into other things. And I think it's great. Yeah, I think 90% of my experience with the Community League was events and programming and figuring out who was going to volunteer for the, the rink because getting rink volunteers is such a hurdle for Community League. Yeah. Um, and we probably spent like maybe 5-10% of our time on development. So all that said, how uh, how does the program work with uh, public and private sector? We talked a little bit about it in my experience, but how did you start to create those connections? Well, like I said, it was really easy. You just, you know, invite people for a coffee and there, and it doesn't matter who you can invite, you know, the, the president of, of a, of a larger company, if they're in Edmonton, they'll meet with you and, and they're happy to do so. Uh, and then often bring two or three other people along. And it's, um, so you connect with people and those networks are always there t- to support. And I think that that's one of the great things about Edmonton. In my experience, you don't have the same level of support. And certainly, from programs across Canada that I'm aware of, um, we are one of, one of the most integrated um, with industry, uh, with the municipality, and those relationships are really strong, and, and I think they're just tremendously valuable. Yeah, every time I talk to a current student of the program, I tell them to ask people for coffees, because I, I've never met someone who's turned down, a, especially a student, for a coffee. Yeah, people are really good here. I mean, I don't know why, but uh, it's, <laughs> it's a fantastic place for that. So. so what are some of, it's been a while since I've been in one of your classes what are some of the upcoming topics that people should be aware of in the planning world i teach municipal finance and i think it's absolutely critical that folks understand the financial side of cities and the financial side of development for anyone who's interested in cities what what happens a lot is you get a lot of people who are interested in the social aspects of cities or you know the look and feel the aesthetic you know i love white avenue or i love the river valley those types of things but that's where the passion often starts um obviously not for for everybody but for a lot of people. But I think if you really want to understand a city, I mean, there's loads of things, but the, the area that I see that um, a lot of people who are in, who are already professional planners or, or um, who are just passionate about this, it's they don't understand the financial side, which is absolutely critical to do so because it helps you understand how you make a city more effective and efficient. And if you can understand particularly the perspective of what gets things built, so the developer perspective, I think that's tremendously valuable. So in my mind, that's that's an area where um, people could dig in and learn a little bit more. Uh, there's all other areas that are really, really important as well. Everybody knows about, you know, the big things, walkability or TOD or these types. These topics have been extremely popular in planning for a long, long time. And similarly, people know about things like eyes on the streets and, and other things that Jane Jacobs and others have, have brought up. But I think a lot of the sort of more subtle things, and I, the one, one thing I'm really interested in is the role that schools play in community building. In my own community, I've seen it where, you know, you move to a community, you often move to a new community that when we first bought our house or when people are uh, settling, they'll, they'll often move to a new community for themselves, meaning a new neighborhood. They might have networks outside of that, but they might not really know anyone close to them. But uh, if you have kids and those kids go to a local school and they play in the local soccer association and you volunteer on your community league or you start going to your community league for various things you start bumping into the same people again and again and again you know maybe then you're out walking a dog or you're just out walking and someone else has their dog and uh, you you get to know people in ways where you build up these connections and this is you know it is another jane jacobs type thing the idea of, of kind of bumping into people and the importance of that but i think about how those networks provide so much value to communities even with things like you know what oh i hurt my I hurt my leg and I can't shovel my walk, but oh, I'll just, you know, give my neighbor a call. Uh, or, you know, if somebody's elderly and, and those connections have been built through the, through the years over time, they have these, you know, connections in their neighborhood in terms of support for them or 
I think it's just absolutely critical. We don't think a lot about this when we when we plan our communities. Certainly in Edmonton uh, in Alberta as a whole, where we have our school planning entirely separate from our, our municipal planning, that, that's a huge issue. And if you look at that process, and I guess this is what I'm getting at, is that no matter what process you're doing, there's lots of things that are left out. And the way we plan schools and the way that the uh, school board plans schools has absolutely no consideration for their impact on communities, which is absolutely bizarre when it has such a big impact. So those types of things I think are important. Um, there's probably lots of other things I'm not thinking about, but those are a couple of, of things that I think uh, young people or even people who are keen to learn more um, should be looking at. Oh, man. In the class that I teach, I we do like three lectures in a row on schools and how they're just so poorly designed. And it's all kind of mandated from different levels of government as well as the school boards themselves. And it's like super complicated. I don't want to get into it here. I agree with you. That's all I want to say. But uh, where I want to go is, you know, we have a, a fairly popular and a fairly new guiding document in the, in the city, the city plan that talks about a lot of those you know, concepts that you were mentioning before, the biggest one, I think, is the TOD. The, In my opinion, the city plan is basically built as a TOD document. We're pushing everything towards nodes and corridors. So I want your perspective on city plan and what kind of things would need to happen in order to successfully implement it. And, you know, if, if you think that vision is achievable. I think that um, city plan is a really, really important document. And I have to tell you that uh, when Kaylin Anderson f- first took that on, I was skeptical about the value of municipal development plans. At the end of the story, I'm going to say that, that they're very important, but yeah, wow. I was skeptical. And why was I skeptical? Because I'd lived for a number of years here and elsewhere, and I'd seen that you know people make these grand plans and then largely ignore them. One of the reasons for that is that the incredible complexity that often these plans um, have in them. And if you think about the ways, I don't know how thick the ways would be if you piled them all up, but you know they're a pretty intricate set of documents, uh, and in some places contradictory and you know not well aligned and. Um, and, and there's lots of good things in them. I mean, actually, a lot of that work is, is tremendously impressive. But, you know, if you think about councillors absorbing all of that and, and uh, other people in, who are involved across administration, across the public, it's, it's hard to sort of wrap it all up and understand it. The beautiful thing about city plan is it's just it's very clear cut. And it's like, hey, look, you got to if you want to transform your city to be a, a 21st century competitive city that is efficient, that provides diverse forms of housing, that allows people to use different forms of transit than automobiles, then you have to do a few things and you have to do them really well. Uh, you have to concentrate things. You have to you have to concentrate your investments, your public investments, and you have to concentrate uh, some aspects of private investment. And the best way to do that is, you know, to build it around transit infrastructure, because getting around is one of the most important things in a city. I mean, the whole reason cities exist is because it allows us to engage largely with employment, but with other aspects as well, where we can connect with people and it facilitates interaction between places and people. And if you can facilitate that interaction in more efficient ways, then your city is more efficient and more effective. So building around transit infrastructure is tremendously valuable. And that's why TOD is so important. But how do you do that? Well, you have to concentrate things. And that's what city plan does. Even if some of the areas, and I I don't really have a critique of this, but it doesn't really matter to me which areas you pick, but pick areas and go with them. I think it's good to pick areas that have existing amenities already. And that's some of the failings, I think, of the city in the past is we've, this city has invested in areas that are absolutely 
that have no amenities uh, with the idea that, hey, this is the worst area of the city. Let's invest millions upon millions of dollars here to make it better, as opposed to saying, hey, here's an area that's pretty good, but if we invest in millions, it could be much, much better. Anyways, so City Plan talks about and focuses on the idea of concentrating these types of things. Um, and once you have a concentration of things, of people and destinations, um, so residential units, shops and stores, coffee shops, uh, and transit, that becomes a very, very livable place for people who want to, to walk where they're going or take transit or take a bike. So that's one of the, the biggest things it does. The other thing it does is it um, concentrates or tells the city where they should be thinking about investing. There's still lots of choice in it. You could invest in this major node or this major node, but it's uh, it says we, you know, the city as a whole should invest in infrastructure in these areas because infrastructure is a huge barrier to infill and densifying the city. And the way we often fund the infrastructure is it's a huge barrier for developers at present. You know, you want to go in, but you're, the building you want to put in by fire code has to have sprinklers. Oh, whoops, the pipes in the ground aren't big enough for those sprinklers. So, you know, cough up seven or eight million dollars to dig up the street and put in the pipes. And then maybe if someone else comes along and develops later, you'll get some of that back. But, you know, that's not that's not a great um, approach when for developers. And so it's easier to just go build a new strip mall in, in the suburbs than it is to, to do that with the, uh, an infill. Anyways. So you've got all of that. And, and I think city plan is nice in, in its simplicity in that it just says, hey, these are the important things. Concentrate, concentrate around transit, um, build infrastructure. And then it highlights everything else very quickly. And you could go through city plan, read it in a day and understand the vision reasonably well. And that's why I think it's, it's really effect, effective and, and important for us. Yeah, you didn't mention education as an important part of implementation too, because I, I think uh, that that's kind of important because... Um, on our last episode, we talked, uh, we had a good discussion about how, um, you know, the conversation has changed from what even infill is. So, you know, it used to be lot splits or, you know, even basement suites gasp were seen as like a, like a boon. And we've moved beyond that a little bit now, but you said something very interesting in a, in a, in a February 8th tweet where you said you have some NIMBY in you. And I think we all have a little bit of NIMBY in us. So, um, how do you kind of see city plan going beyond, you know, simply kowtowing to the NIMBYs and, uh, and not being successful. You know, in the education front, again, this is one of those areas when it first started it up, I have to say, I was a little skeptical of the the infill team. Then they did a fantastic job and, and absolutely um, educated a lot of people. And Idea, of course, is doing the same type of work. So when there's a development proposed in, in Westmount, and I look on the Westmount Facebook page, you know, I see people ranting as people will always rant. Um, and, you know, people are always, they're afraid of change in their communities. And I get that, but they get angry. Some people respond with anger. Some people respond with fear um, and concern and, you know, oh, we're going to have to move out of our neighborhood because it'll be destroyed. And they don't understand these things. And that that's fair. And some people have legitimate, you know, if you live next door and someone builds a tower, you are impacted by it. I mean, that's, you don't necessarily have the right to say no, but you are impacted. I think it's fair to say that if your nice sunlight that you're used to is, is taken away by a change, you're it's a real impact. But other people often are just, you know, it's fears and it, it can spread. What I love about that Facebook page is I will see, uh, usually for every panicked comment that I see there, I'll see a dozen people putting out messages about the importance of inclusion. And it, we, we recently had a, a supportive housing, a fairly large one uh, built in Westmount. It, it's under construction now, but it was approved uh, probably about nine months ago. It's hard to say with the pandemic time is weird. So, um, but in any case, it was approved a while ago. And that discussion was beautiful on Facebook. So many people, and I mean, people with no background in planning or 
uh, urbanism stood up for that to talk about how important it was and how, um, look, these things are not harmful. The impacts are, are minimal and it provides important housing for people and we have to do this. And a lot of that messaging comes from somewhere and it comes from groups who have advocated these messages and put them out there and, and helped educate people. So that idea of public education around uh, these types of topics is, is really, really important. And the cause and effect is hard to see, meaning like, you know, whether it's um information that idea has put out there whether things that uh, the city has put out through the the infill group or otherwise it's gone out there somehow and over time people have learned and adopted it in in certain communities and i think that that um, is really really valuable the other thing is edmonton has been administration has been really brilliant in how it's changed the land use bylaw over the last 15 years. The, the approach of incrementalism with the odd big change, I think, has been fantastic. And, you know, lot splitting was, was huge when it happened. And, and a lot of people were angry. And again, I'll, I'll talk just about my own neighborhood. People were afraid houses were coming down, new things were being built. And um, there was a lot of resistance. But then the houses went up and then people moved in. And then they got names, you know, hey, that's it's Dave or that's that's, you know, usually you learn them by their their dog or their dog's name. Right. So that that's Fluffy's owner. Right. But then over time, you get to know them and, and then you go out Halloweening with your kids and they've decorated their house all up and you get to know them and they become people in your community. And you see them as a tremendous asset to your community. And you forget about the fact that you were afraid when that, that old house went down and, and these two new skinny uh, homes went up. So I think that happens. And then it was wonderful because when the semi-detached approval came through, the, you know, approving semi-detached across all um, RF1 zones, so the, the single detached zone, there was like no resistance. And even in communities, I, I didn't hear anything. And I think it's because, oh, well, yeah, remember we all got upset about skinnies and thought it was they were going to destroy the world. And, you know, this is just kind of more of the same and we probably shouldn't. So the public can really learn about these things. And, and I think it's it's just intriguing to me to see and to, to sort of suss out what's actually happening. Yeah, and my, my comment, uh, it was funny on, on Twitter when I said, you know, I've got a little bit of NIMBY in me. And it's exactly that. I, I've always said this, that I can appreciate when someone's right next or, or near development or seeing things change in their community. Well, sometimes they are actually really affected. And the effect is, you know, on their property, it is a negative. And I think that it's really helpful if we as planners actually understand that and, and recognize that, that, you know, some concerns aren't so legitimate. You know, I live nine blocks away and I hate walking by, you know, that that's that that's a stretch. But if you live right next door to something, even the construction, right, you like that old building next to you and the construction for a year or so is going to have noise and things like that. Those are real world impacts. Um, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't allow things, but it is useful to sympathize with people or empathize with them around that and understand that it is part of change. I do think just jumping back to education, the more that we can let people who live in these neighborhoods know that change is going to happen and give them more time to absorb that knowledge, the better. Recently, when there was a proposal in my neighborhood, and I, I got looped into the, the large emails that were going around, you know, I responded and they were looking for people to oppose it. And I responded saying, well, you know, this is part of change. And I, I was empathetic to their concerns. And um, I noted that, you know, not all things about this are bad. Indeed, Think about it. As we get older, these are the types of buildings that we might want to rent. We might, we might want to move to after we no longer want to cut grass. Some of us, right? Maybe we can move to a condo, but be still in the neighborhood. As the street develops, we're likely to see some small commercial shops. You know, a coffee shop here or there, or 
And there can be benefits to these things. So, you know, I put into it that change is scary and I understand that, but there are also positives. And I think that um, helping people understand that change is coming much sooner uh, or, or, you know, well in advance helps to spread that message. And I think it then takes some of the fear away. I think it's it's really interesting about City Plan is people who have read it or who are in the, the planning development world understand what it means. But I'm not sure that we've done a great enough job of of telling the average Edmontonian that lives in and around those nodes and corridors and will see the most significant change. What do you think that the city and, and groups like IDEA can do better to help communicate that uh, and host those kind of conversations earlier on? I'll start with saying I think it's really important that, that we do so, that we let people know that change will happen over time so that they can absorb that. Maybe they want to move. If they if they really don't like it, they can start to think about, well, you know what, this area is going to change. This isn't what we signed up for. So let's sell our house and, and move somewhere else if they're in a house or let's, um, you know, give up our, our rental when the lease is up and, and move somewhere else. It gives them that time to do so. Um, it also gives others time to get informed about it and say, well, how do we want to impact this? And what are we looking for? And how, when, when a developer comes around, we can tell them what we'd like to see because we've taken the time. I think that's really critical. Um, and then also sharing the positive aspects of that change. And I think that's another important part. Now, so what can groups do about it? Only those of us who are really keen actually have read City Plan. Those of us who uh, know and, and love this stuff um, or you know are involved in it, for our profession uh, do this. People in, in many neighborhoods have no idea. They don't know what it means. They don't know the differences between all of these plans and, and they shouldn't. But I do wonder if what would happen if there was a, um, you know, a door drop in these neighborhoods of pamphlets saying, you know, your neighborhood's going to change. I mean, maybe it just starts some conversations early. Like I'm pretty radical on, on upzoning things. If, if I could wave a magic wand, I would upzone massive areas of the city. In doing so, that education process and the conflict around it would happen before developments actually were coming forward. So you could preempt it and shorten the, shorten the timelines for developers. I think that would be tremendously valuable. But I think that even before that, you know, as much education that, that as we can have about how this makes the city more affordable, provides diverse housing forms, get those messages out before developments are proposed. Yeah, I think uh, the community might be interested to know that just as scared of changes they are, like the development industry is also a little nervous when they have to go out and have these hard conversations around site-specific change. Uh, and if we were able to get them all in a room earlier on, when it's not about a specific like lots being consolidated, an apartment going up, or a commercial use coming into their neighborhood, it humanizes them because the infill industry in Edmonton is is very local. It's it's not people really outside of Edmonton building or investing in our city. It's people who are, have their kids going to Timbits hockey and and things like that. They don't even know that the developers and uh, all the other people that work in the development industry walk among them. <laughs> I, there's probably always going to be resistance, but I think what you get are you get those allies. And, and as I mentioned, it's really amazing when I see these comments on, on Facebook about all these people supporting infill developments. And that's a change from you know 10 years ago when I would see none of that. I think it's because of the type of public education that has happened over time and uh, more people engaging. But I do see whenever a development is proposed somewhere, there are large swaths of people who have never paid any attention 
to any of these things, you know, even though they're tremendously exciting, uh, they, they just don't dig in and learn about them uh, until it comes to their neighborhood. And they're shocked. You know, they're shocked that somehow this street is designated as, uh, you know, a major corridor or a primary corridor. And then that means it's supposed to change over time. You know, maybe when we do this, we should get that information out to them just to let them know that, you know, city plan has has passed. And uh, just so you're aware, you're in an affected neighborhood and that, you know, over time you can expect changes to happen. I wonder if a notice like that, and I don't know, I'm just, you know, uh, throwing ideas out. Maybe that people start to read it and dig in and start to think about it uh, and phone their counselor. And instead of phoning them a week, you know, before a public hearing, they phone them then, and then their counselor has the time to get them some information or to chat with them about it. Um, and to say, well, you know, it, it's going to change. And this is just the way markets work and the way that um, cities have to change to be effective. That then gives those people time to adapt and absorb that before the change comes. Yeah, you talked a little bit about the affordability of a city. And we're very lucky in Edmonton, we're relatively affordable compared to other major municipalities around Canada. But what do you think we need to either continue doing or focus on to keep that a part of our city? Yeah, I think that relative affordability is is a good thing. And so one thing I would sort of caution is that we don't want to look at Toronto and Vancouver and say, oh, well, it's, and I'm not not accusing you of this, but we do this a lot. It's affordable here. So we don't really have to worry. Um, And that that can happen, right? Is that relative to many other places, we are affordable. But I don't know, uh, if I were graduating from university, and um, even a household with two professionals who are starting out to get into the housing market is tough. I mean, it's a huge portion of, of, a, of a person's income to do so. And the more affordable we can make it, the better. So we always have to be striving to make housing more affordable. And certainly in terms of when it's um, when we're talking about efficiencies, there's, there's no reason to have a whole bunch of inefficiencies in our system that add to the cost of something so fundamental as housing. I'm a big advocate for social housing and affordable housing in the terms of, you know, these are areas that both require some government involvement to reduce the cost of housing. But I think the more we can make all housing more affordable, that then reduces the need for government intervention at that lower end. And we can do a better job of those people who fall into uh, that, that need for housing. You know, one of the challenges we face in this city is that in the 1980s and 90s, so a couple of decades, you know, housing was very affordable. And I mean affordable like you graduated high school and you got a job at the local grocery store. You went out and bought a house because you could buy a house for $70,000. And, you know, maybe you rent a room to your friend or something for 100 bucks or 200 bucks a month to help pay uh, for that. Even if you didn't have a job. If you had nothing, you could still get an apartment for 300 bucks a month, $250 a month. It was just amazingly affordable. So the challenge there, of course, is then we didn't think about this issue for a couple of decades. And then we see a lot of population growth in the 2000s due to the economic boom. And all of a sudden, nothing is up to speed. Our planning isn't up to speed. Our development industry isn't up to speed. And our, our the social side of this, you know, the idea that we have to build social and affordable housing or have it as part of the, the toolkit, we didn't have any of that ready to go. And we ran into some real problems for a while. But even, you know, things cooled off and, and we built up our, our processes by uh, over the last five or six years, we haven't seen that same surge in housing prices that we did in the early 2000s. So so we, we're in a better situation, but we need to continue to push. So I'll get to your question. What do we need to keep doing? A, I think we absolutely need to get on with upzoning things. And uh, this is controversial. There's two ways you can do it. You can either upzone 
or you can send a tremendously strong signal that upzoning here will be easy and fast if you're a developer, right? So if you look around any LRT station, particularly one that is, is meant to see some change. So there are a few that uh, both are physically well suited for it, as well as um, there are large lots near them and things like that. But we have lots of areas in, in Edmonton that have RF1 zoning, you know, single detached zoning um, right next to LRT stations that cost us about $400 million to build if you take the whole line and divide it by the number of stations. So tremendous investment. And we, ha we don't have the zoning in place. And sure, as a developer, you could look at that and say, hey, you know, I've managed, th these four houses are up for sale, or I, I think I can buy these four houses over the next few years. I've, I've reached out to a few people and uh, seems like they're willing to sell. So I can buy those, um, put them together and, and build some type of denser unit. But then what am I going to face for resistance from the neighbors? And it just becomes not viable from a financial standpoint to take all of those risks. Uh, and then you have someone else on the same street who they've lived there for 40 years in a house that was already you know 60 years old and they want to upgrade. So they decide to tear down their house and build a new single detached home right next to an LRT station, even though the land has much better use. So I think we need to upzone. Um, that's that's one thing. Or send a signal that these areas are ready to be upzoned and that it will be easy. That'll help reduce the cost because if you're a developer and you're looking at a site to build, you build in your expected profits and whatever those numbers are, um, if it's a go or not a go, you decide to go with it. And those expected profits include risk. And that risk might be, okay, if, if things go well, we can build in, uh, you know, 12 months if they go exceptionally well. If they go kind of a little bit off, it might be 18 months. But if things go really poorly and we get a lot of pushback from, you know, administration and lots of people and the community rallies against us because they don't want this dense new building and they all come out and they just happen to hit council on the right day and um, we could get pushed back even further. So all of that risk is built into the, the pricing and that adds cost to the final product. So that that's one thing. And of course, that's all infill. I think that if we want more infill as a city and, and city plan calls for that, we have to make it super, super easy and we have to make approvals really fast. I don't know if you saw the report from the Ontario government on housing affordability that came out a week ago. Um, everyone should read it. One of the things it calls for is to basically remove all zoning uh, restrictions next to LRT stations in terms of height density. Like if you're right next to an LRT station or within that sort of 100 to 200 meter, uh, if you're within the 200 meters, you can build whatever you want as long as it's dense. That's that's kind of the call to action that it has in it. And then it says everywhere else we should upzone. This is the Ontario report. Everywhere else on any lot, uh, we should basically allow fourplexes uh, up to four stories high so that you could build sort of four-story apartments everywhere. I think these types of things go a tremendous way to helping improve affordability. And we've done lots. You know, getting rid of parking minimums was huge. Allowing for semi-detached everywhere was big. Allowing for suites makes things more affordable. The more you open up the market for building, uh, the more you reduce costs. There's probably more things, but I'll stop there for now. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really interesting. I'm really passionate about that because uh, I'm in a very fortunate situation. Uh, me and my partner were both working professionals, and I have dedicated a very large portion of my professional life to infill development. And at this point, uh, and after lots of years of savings, we're still not at a place where we can affordably live in a mature neighborhood, which is just so unbelievably frustrating. And I know Ryan just went through buying his place. It's not as easy. Like we still make greenfield development so much easier. It's And so many of my friends moved out there. So it's hard to watch my community 
moved so far away from the amenities we have within our our neighborhoods. And I, I want them, selfishly, I want them to stay around me so that our kids can grow up together and we can go grab a glass of wine after work, but it's a work in progress. Uh, I think about this a lot, the affordability piece. And one of the major differences between suburban and, and infill development that I don't think gets talked enough about it is, is land cost. So one of the kind of side effects of um, upzoning everything or allowing uh, more things to happen on a given parcel is that all of a sudden when they hit the market, uh, they're priced for what could be built on there rather than what is built on there. So you have a, a, an older house that you could build an apartment building on that house has asbestos all of a sudden there's costs there there's infrastructure costs that go into it but naturally that land is just valued more because of what can be done on there and i don't see a real solution to that but i'd love to hear your thoughts on that uh, kind of land valuation and speculation and that thing if you have any thoughts on that bob yeah so this is a, an argument that often comes up so and there was you know there's a study done a while ago i think it was in boston that made this argument it didn't really make the argument and if you listen to the author and the author's um I forget the name of who did it, but in any case, it, it had a bit of an influence. It's like, oh, we upzoned an area and, you know, the price of everything on it went up, including the new build that eventually was built there was was very expensive. But this is this happens when, when you repress development everywhere and then you say, oh, in this little spot you can develop, land prices go up. And so what we have, we have a lot of speculation in a city like Edmonton. And that's one of the reasons we have towers and parking lots is because of this. There's a whole history there too of how we tore down things. But um, still, if, if you kind of repress development everywhere, but you can allow people to rezone things in some cases to be much higher, then there's this ability to essentially rezone and then increase the value of the land and then sell it off. And, and it's valuable for you if you own a parcel of land, let's say a tower or something dense could be built on, you get it rezoned. Well, then you can sit on it because then if the market goes up, right, then all of a sudden people want to build and they're saying, where can we build? And it's like, hey, have I got a deal for you? I've got a spot right on 124th Street or right downtown. It's ready to go. You can build up to 24 stories here and this density, um, it's all pre-zoned. So you can save 18 months or the risk of 36 months. You can do it while oil is still booming. You don't have to risk anything. That's a huge value. But the only reason that value is there is because there's only a few of them. And there are, you know, there are you know, quite a few in Edmonton. People say, well, there's 20 or 30 sites like that. That's 20 or 30 sites. Now, what if we had 2000 sites like that, right? Then the value is lost. When we allowed semi-detached across all our F1 uh, neighborhoods, did the market change? No, it didn't change in the least. It's because you open up everything. So the only reason you see this land value increase is actually because of the restrictions. And it's almost like a dam, right? If, if you poke a hole in the dam, water runs through it. But if there's no dam there, the water, there's no pressure behind it. So there's this constant pressure everywhere for more development. But because there's such a process to go through to increase uh, what you can build there or to change it, you end up with a situation where anytime anyone does that, you see a value increase. I don't know what would happen if you removed all zoning limitations tomorrow, but it wouldn't be that every site would be valued at the price of a hundred story tower. That would only happen if you repress building everywhere. I would, in fact, let's say you just take city plan and you take all of the areas that are meant as major nodes and major corridors. And you said, we magically rezone all of this today so that you can build what we envision anywhere in any of these areas. In fact, what you would see is that the areas that are currently zoned for higher density would see their value drop because all of a sudden there would be 
hundreds, if not thousands of competing sites for that. It, what that allows to happen is it allows the market to work. Where do people want to live? Where do people want to go? I've heard this as well. So planners will say, you know what? It doesn't work to upzone because we uh, we upzoned, um, you know, out at in, in the quarters or we upzoned at oh Station Point. These these areas haven't been successful, but markets don't want to go there. And markets being the, you know, the millions of decisions that all of us make every day and the decisions that, you know, both of you and others make about where they want to live didn't choose those sites for various reasons. There's not enough amenities. It's in the wrong area. It's not next to my parents' house where I want to live, whatever it is. Um, we don't know why people want, we can guess, but we don't really know markets. But if you open up lots of areas for development, then the markets can work and people can, and developers and investors will buy properties or, or current landowners will say, I want to develop this. And if they have a, a marketable or, or something that can sell and there are people willing to buy, it will go. But if planners try to guess, oh, well, we want this area to develop only. And so it's a balance between saying we want, you know, we open everything up or we just decide on certain areas as city plan does and we open those areas up um, and then let them the market work within those. So I think that's the big answer is that the real problem um, of this land valuation and people speculating isn't due to upzoning. It's actually due to repressive zoning everywhere that when you upzone a certain site or a small area, you get a land value increase. Yeah, I think we saw that when we did lot splits, right? We started off on only certain lots, certain widths, corner sites. RF3 first. Yeah, because there was such a limited supply, then the land went crazy high. And then the conversation around, oh, it was going to be an affordable option. Actually, the regulations made it. So it was definitely, it was not an affordable option. I was just going to say, Adam Smith was right all along. That supply and demand is just, that just drives everything. So I think we, we're running short on time here. So I just have, um, I want to switch gears for one second here. You sit on, uh, or you're involved with the university's sustainability council. Talk about what your role is with that, and uh, and what kind of work is coming out of there. So it was it was kind of funny. Um, at when when the planning school was established, and uh, I was um I was ready to step out. At that point, I was associate director, and I thought, you know what, I want to just get back to research and teaching, and, and get on with these things. Uh, and then I was um, asked if I would um, take on this responsibility of a new unit called the Sustainability Council. I, I helped develop the idea when uh, the Office of Sustainability was closed. Um, but the Sustainability Council is really an academic unit that focuses on expanding our educational opportunities around sustainability and awareness of broad-based issues of sustainability. And, you know, just to, if you look at the Sustainable Development Goals, which are very broad from the United Nations, that's the type of stuff that we support. And it, it's problem-focused research and teaching that's interdisciplinary and that works to uh, address issues around uh, the SDGs. Now, um, I'll just finish what I was saying. Um, I was ready to essentially go back and then I, this opportunity came up and I thought, wow, what an opportunity to, even at a small level, help nudge you know this massive institution, um, which does fantastic stuff around sustainability, to nudge it forward. And, and so I said, yes, and it's it's been wonderful. And what we're doing, so we're launching, we have a, a certificate in sustainability that's been around for a few years. We're revamping that. Uh, we've launched new courses, uh, Sustainability 201 and 202 this year, uh, and we're launching some new courses in the future. But mostly what my job is, is actually building bridges across campus. People who do sustainability-oriented work in terms of this uh, sort of interdisciplinary approach, systems thinking and problem-focused research are kind of scattered across campus. 
So some institutions will have like a faculty of the environment and they're all clustered there. Well, we're all scattered across campus. So I have to build bridges and build institutional bridges um, across the bureaucracy to make things work. Um, so that's what we're doing. And some of the things that we're looking at are a master's of sustainability science, some climate change programming for our environmental studies degree, which we've gotten involved in. Uh, it's a degree that's existed for a while, but has been fairly small. We're working on revamping that and expanding it and putting a climate change stream in, uh, as well as the possibility of a master's and a whole bunch of other things too. Uh, it's exciting. You know, these opportunities arise and, and they're fantastic. So yeah, really important work too. We've talked about a lot of stuff today, but um, if you, what we typically do at the end is allow our guests to have a call to action. So we talked about a lot of things today, but if you had to kind of summarize it into one um, call to action, what would you say to our listeners? Okay. um, So there are a few things. And this is, I'm going to assume your listeners are, you know, the planning geeks and development geeks around uh, the city. So the first thing is, is we have to figure out this issue of concentration and concentrating our efforts. That doesn't mean that, you know, we only focus on certain areas, but when we're going to focus on walkability and you know, bikeability and dense living and transit and even exciting things like public art and so on. We have to think very carefully about where we put these things. Uh, I think the one of the gravest mistakes in Edmonton uh, history was putting a, a million dollars of public art on the bus barn. And I know that's a bit controversial to say, but in cities where you have limited resources, you have to concentrate things. Uh, that's not to say you can't distribute public art, but you can distribute a whole bunch of lower cost aspects of public art um, and then put your most impressive piece in your downtown core where the most people engage with it. Anyways, so concentration is really, really important. We saw the same thing with bike lanes. Um, If you spread them all out, they don't work very well. If you put them in one area and concentrate them and do them very high quality, they work very well. So concentration is one. Two, we need to remove barriers to change. Our whole conversation has been about that. So I I won't get into that in any more depth, but I think that's absolutely key. And then I think for all of those people who are planning and development geeks and involved in NGOs and go to coffee outside and all those types of things in Edmonton, um, coming together to build a coalition of, of people to enact change and to support city plan and those types of things, I think is really valuable. When I look at other cities and I look at the history of places, even looking at the history of White Avenue, great places and great spaces come about when uh, NGOs, government people, private developers, uh, and sheer champions from communities work collaboratively together to make change. And that change happens you know, across the spectrum. You never see markets do that on their own. You don't see governments doing that on their own. It's always a collaboration. So you look at the history of Portland or the history of basically anywhere that you go, any street, if you go to any street in the world and you say, wow, this is a great street. If you dig into the history of it, it was always a collaboration of lots of different people. So I think that's key. So that's where the work of ideas and so important and connecting across, um, you know, multiple professions and groups is, is really critical. So get together and work on that. That was awesome. Yeah. Collect, uh, connecting, collaborating. What was the third C? Uh, maybe concentrating. Concentrating. Yeah, the three C's of uh, of Dr. Summers' call to action. That was great. Thank you for spending the last hour with us talking. Um, I know we learned a lot and we could probably go on a, uh, a lot longer, so we'll definitely have you on again. But yeah, thank you for your time, Dr. Summers. Great. Thank you very much for having me. It's been fun. Thanks so much. Wow, Bob is smart. That was awesome. And I really hated calling him Bob the whole time because I feel like that doesn't 
do him justice, but saying Dr. Summers over and over again is just, uh, it's a mouthful that I wasn't prepared for. But uh, yeah, how good was that? Oh, it took me back to the planning days. I loved taking his courses. Uh, and I felt the exact same way. I'm like, we're close enough that I could say Bob, but also it just, it felt wrong. I was like, you're still Dr. Summers to me. Yeah. He, Bob actually hired me at, uh, at the U of A to teach the one class that I'm teaching there. And uh, I was so intimidated. I met him at uh, Leva Cafe, which is now Sepp's Pizza, I think. Maybe it's still Leva by the university. And I, w- I remember shaking like the entire time I got there, like treating it like a job interview. And he was so down to earth and very kind of not casual, but he, it was disarming talking to him. So maybe that's why we feel comfortable calling him Bob because um, he is a larger than life kind of personality, but uh, doesn't act like it. He's very humble. Oh my goodness. He is insanely smart and accomplished. So yeah, we're lucky that we had him on today's episode. Agreed. Yeah. So a couple things that, that stood out for me that we should debate here. Planning. It's so vast and so many opportunities. I love that about planning. Anyone that's going into planning that's listening right now, you can get any job in planning. If you're, there, there's so many different areas of kind of expertise and interest that, uh, that you can go into like transportation or, uh, I'm involved in land use and policy planning. Um, you can go kind of long range planning. There's, you know, parks planning and there's kind of infrastructure and there's all sorts of different areas of planning. And, and that's kind of what I love about the, the industry. Um, but what I really liked about what Bob was talking about, um, when creating the program and I asked him specifically about, you know, how do you attract students? And he said, well, well, it's easy. Um, employment is definitely a carrot for planning students. You All you have to do is search on Indeed or LinkedIn or whatever, and there's jobs out there asking for planners, which isn't something that, like Bob mentioned in the episode, and I think you have a little bit more of a firsthand knowledge of, Mariah, is uh, geographers. There's no such thing as geographers, for example. So kind of the, the, all the different options available to planning kind of made it easy to, uh, to start up that program for sure. Yeah, and for anyone who doesn't know my backstory, um, I went to university and took elementary education. Loved it. I loved being in the classroom and I love students. But at that time, there was lots of students that didn't have the community they needed to be successful and it broke my heart. They didn't have the resources that they needed. And I really didn't like the way that the curriculum was headed. (laughs) And I thought I need to be a part of a bigger change to help these students in their future. And um, the planning program was advertising all over the U of A that it just kicked off and I didn't even know planning was a thing. And so I'd messaged Dr. Summers and said, hey, how can I get involved? You, I don't want to take another four-year degree. You don't have a master's program quite yet. And so uh, we settled on, I do a human geography after degree and take like, I just took all the planning courses. So I have all the courses I need for the degree. I just did it through the human geography <laughs> route. Um, I love the human geography courses I took too. But yeah, you're right. When I was like job searching, there's no one being like, I can't wait to hire a human geographer i know exactly (laughs) what they are and what they do (laughs) it's not a linear path for human geographers it's very you do what you are interested in passionate you find the right place yeah that's kind of like planning too did you take uh, any classes that bob was teaching yeah i took i think two of his courses so he did an intro course for environmental studies and we talked a lot about water and then he did another course I can't remember it now, uh, but it was a smaller course. And he made a joke about there's no need for $400 blenders. And it like always stuck with me. That 
he's he's the man of the people you don't need expensive blenders for your smoothies and i just thought that was so funny and then my other funny uh dr summer's story is i used to go to public hearings when i was in university just to like learn about the process and i also just i found it as interesting as others find like hockey games and plays and stuff like that I'm a weirdo. And then it was a time of lot splits that was going on the conversation. And it was like me and Dr. Summers in the crowd. And I was like, so nervous. I didn't know what to say to him. I was like, he was my professor. And he asked if I had Tylenol and I had like loose Tylenol in the bottom of my backpack. And he all of a sudden didn't need a Tylenol. <laughs> <laughs> the headache went away on its own as soon as he saw that lint covered Tylenol. Hey. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, I wonder if he remembers that and what his experience was like. We should have asked him. I have to make a joke about him with him one day about it. <laughs> so when you got out uh, um, and you found that there weren't any human geographer needs out there and uh, you saw that there was planning needs, um, Bob talked a lot about Edmonton historically has been kind of a stepping stone for planners coming educated in other places um, and then coming to Edmonton to work before bouncing to, to either head back to where they're from or go somewhere else. Is that what you thought of doing when you went through all those uh, elective programs? So I'm really fortunate. I have a really strong community in Edmonton. So I knew I wanted to start my career here. I thought maybe I'd go uh, other places and then end up here. So it was kind of the opposite problem that Dr. Summers was talking about. Uh, but what was your experience like? Yeah, that was that was definitely my experience. Um, when I was uh, when I graduated, there was no planning program, so I left and I went to Winnipeg. Um, and I definitely, as soon as I graduated from U of M, I started in a smaller city in Manitoba, the city of Brandon. That was my first job as a planner, and I always knew that that was going to be a stepping stone. And I feel bad. I don't. I hope nobody from Brandon is listening right now. I apologize for for leaving you. I know I was a really big part of your city there, but yeah, it was. Um, it was a stepping stone. And then I was lucky enough that uh, it was during the boom time. So Edmonton was hiring like crazy because oil was peaking and uh, development was happening like crazy. So I found a job really easily in Edmonton. And then Edmonton was supposed to be kind of an intermediate stop, even though I'm from here. You know, I'm a man with some grand ambitions and plans, Mariah. I think you know that about me. But I had planned to, uh, you know, head to one of the really big municipalities and go be like an Uber planner in Toronto or Vancouver or uh, Amsterdam, Denmark, one of those places that never really materialized. And I, I kind of re fell in love with Edmonton a little bit. I also have ties to the city. My family's here, still here. It didn't turn into a stepping stone, but I did definitely coming out of planning school. I did definitely use the municipality that I was in as a stepping stone. So I, I definitely appreciate that from, uh, from Bob. Okay, wait, before we go into something else, I need to say something. And we I've forgotten because it's so a part of my like, just feels normal now. Um, and I don't know why we haven't talked about it yet. But yes, you can go anywhere. And I'm glad you stuck around. But also the people of Edmonton are wonderful. And what I think one of the reasons you stuck around is your beautiful partner. And now you have a beautiful new baby girl. So she's forcing <laughs> you to stick around for a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah, much like how you're forcing me to talk about her right now. Yeah, she's forcing me to stick around a little bit longer. Yes. So, your baby uh, girl, yeah. not not your partner. The baby girl, not my partner. Yeah. No, she has family ties from here too. She's not, she was born in Toronto though. But uh, yeah, my uh, my little baby girl, she's six weeks old now. And because you're making me talk about it, uh, we are still registered at West Coast Kids if anyone wants to go and get me something. <laughs> um, <laughs> I might as well get something 
something out of this. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's funny. You kind of think that your life is going to go a certain direction and then it doesn't. Yeah, nothing's very linear in life, which which I think both you and I can kind of attest to. Everything kind of moves in different directions. But yes, thank you for bringing that up. I do have a little girl now. We're struggling through sleeping and schedules. And, well, she looks just like me, so of course she's cute. But yeah. She's, she's so cute. Yeah. So that's part of the reason we took time off over the holidays was because it was the holidays, but also because Ryan got a new beautiful, beautiful addition to his family. So well, bless your heart for saying that. Now that I've gushed a lot and put you on the spot, let's talk about community leagues and the importance of community leagues. Yeah, you were on a community league. I want you to go first. For sure. So I was on the North Melbourne Community League. Uh, Dr. Summers told all of the planning students go volunteer for your community league. It'll be some of the best experience you've ever had. And boy, was he right. I actually have dinner plans with one of my former community league uh, members tomorrow night. Um, and one of my best friends came from my community league. She is so hilarious. She helped me get the job that I have now, uh, helped me get more involved in the political sphere in Edmonton. But also it helped me learn like what community leagues go through on a day-to-day basis. Like they're trying to activate their space, bring people together, host barbecues. We did a big like fireworks show and New Year's Eve party that would have like 500 people every year would show up and it would get bigger and bigger. It was really, it was really fun. That was five years ago that I was on my community league and I was on there for about five or six years. What about you? What's your experience like? I actually just joined. So I live in McKernan now and I just joined the the community league uh, in, in a small capacity, but I wish I'd have started beforehand. So it's the experience. I mean, it's really shallow at this point because I haven't really gotten too much involved with it. But the interesting thing is that uh, we work with neighboring community leagues quite a bit. And so Belgravia, their planning team, their planning committee over there, there's like two former U of A students that are kind of running that entire show right now, which is very interesting. Um, and same thing with some other neighboring community leagues as well. So I think Dr. Summers's words about getting involved with your community leagues, that definitely resonated. But yeah, it's a really interesting and good way to affect change in your neighborhood somewhere that you live very close by, whether that's, you know, events like you're talking about. We have a cool little newsletter and, uh, you know, fundraising events like the we do like a good food box or whatever that supports the schools and the rinks and everything. That's It, it makes you feel really good. And it's a great way to meet other people in the neighborhood as well. I went to a couple events and now all of a sudden I know like, you know, a couple of realtors and students and people that I'm going to use later on down the line if I need them. So it's, a, it's, it's awesome. It's uh it's really grassroots and uh, it's important to, sh- to city building for sure. Yeah, definitely get involved in your community league. One thing that I want to talk about real quick here, I have a lot of thoughts on this is uh, Dr. Summers talked a bunch about um, school site design. And the only thing I really want to just clarify on that is that everything is it's a really complicated system because it's regulated by the province, uh, individual school boards, and then municipalities have rules on how you can design your park spaces and, and that kind of thing. And they all kind of work together, but they're all stuck in this weird little funding cycle. So funding for schools comes kind of depending on who's in charge at the provincial government level and how much money is available and what their priorities are and that type of thing. So school boards have moved towards this very standardized uh, school design. So uh, I call it the flying V. It's a V-shaped building and it's always located at the corner of intersections and, you know, parking has to go here and uh, the school building goes here and playgrounds go here and there has to be these types of sports facilities everywhere. So what we see is 
kind of the same, like from an overhead perspective, if you looked at uh, new schools that are built in Edmonton, whether or not that's, you know, the new school in Ritchie or a school in the suburb and compare those to schools that are built in like Calgary or Grand Prairie, you won't be able to tell the difference between the overhead images. They all kind of look the same. It's all on kind of a square site with a V-shaped building and the same facilities everywhere. So the standardization makes a lot of sense from the perspective of if funding is available, they got to get this in the ground immediately. So spending a lot of time on design on weird shaped sites doesn't make a ton of sense from an efficiency perspective. But we're creating basically the same site everywhere. So it's, it's kind of interesting. It takes kind of the fun out of site planning for, uh, for planners at, uh, at the school boards. I hope that in the future we can get some school board planners on here to counteract that argument. But uh, yeah, another thing that, uh, that Bob was talking about was, which you and I talk about a lot, is building on what's already good versus building it and they will come. So kind of focusing our efforts, and this is kind of the entire infill mandate, right, is, you know, focusing your efforts of, you know, finances or amenities or any kind of influence that you can put on an area, you should focus those on areas where there already is amenities, transit, people living, people are going to those places, that kind of thing. So, you know, we talked about the concentration of art um, and how, you know, art used to be just kind of divvied up around the city and that type of thing. But concentrating in areas where people already go is probably a better approach. What do you think? Yeah, I have a lot of opinions on the concentration of art in our city. Uh, so I will leave that for another day if anyone wants to <laughs> I tried it. to bait you into it. Okay. <laughs> well, well, we'll just be here forever because I will go down a rabbit hole. <laughs> But the thing about cities is there's things that people are looking for to meet their needs. And some areas have great schools and great parks. Some areas have great commercial districts. Some areas have good access in and out of the city. And that's what they need for work. Some areas have good employment. Uh, and some areas, they just like the street design. But people build and people live in different areas for different things. So there's not a certain recipe that makes an area beautiful and wonderful and attractive for people to live in, but it also takes a lot to bring people into an area that maybe isn't uh, as desirable or well-loved uh, right now. And so if we have a finite amount of resources for infrastructure or for art or for commercial or for good schools, then we need to be really pragmatic and holistic in how we use our resources to help change because we could put a ton of resources into an area that's really struggling uh, and I'll move it a little bit, which is great. Or we can do it in a few areas that are moderately struggling and those will all kind of kickstart into the next phase, which I'll have incremental effects on other areas surrounding it. Yes, it doesn't mean we leave a community behind, but we need to be thoughtful about how we move forward. And so one of the th good things about Edmonton is we do have a plan for things like nodes and corridors. And so if you don't know what nodes and corridors are, we have defined that in past episodes, but really it's like where commercial already exists, where transit already exists, how you move in and around your neighborhood. That's where you're going to see a lot more density and a lot more uh, commercial activity, which is great. But those areas need love. They need sidewalks and fire hydrants and bus stops and bike lanes. And so we need to find ways to fund all of that uh, to make our city attractive to current uh, residents, attractive to new residents, as well as give people housing options. I think 
one thing that is really failing in our mature neighborhoods in Edmonton is we have like one type of housing option. And if that doesn't suit your need or you grow out of that need because your family gets bigger or your family gets smaller or your capabilities are less, then you got to move out. That's bonkers to me. Nose and corridors. <laughs> Let's find ways to fund them. Yeah, that's what that's what actually happened to me. I had to move from our previous neighborhood because, because my wife got pregnant. So we didn't have enough space where we were. So we had to move out of there and we tried to stay in the same neighborhood. That wasn't really affordable or a, a reasonable option. There wasn't a ton available. So we did have to move neighborhoods and shout out to McKernan for uh, having what we needed for sure, including a train. It's really cool. People are living in different uh, ways. It's not just like that single family home uh, that meets people's needs anymore. It's lots of different ways. Um, and it goes back to that episode with Chelsea of meeting your neighbors and getting to know people around you. But with all that said, it was incremental change that got us to where we are today. So over the past 12, 10 years, uh, we focused a lot around how do we diversify our neighborhoods uh, to allow for different types of development and allow for new types of people to come and access your neighborhood, people that maybe lived there at one point and had to leave, or people who just love that neighborhood and wanted to access it. So we did the infill roadmap 1.0 and 2.0 as a city, which like allowed for first it lo- did lot splits. Then it did uh, garden suites and secondary suites and semi-detached and row housing. Uh, So it's all like incrementally moving forward towards our nodes and corridors and city plan realization, which is great. Uh, And now we're in this like sweet spot where we've outgrown all of our roles and we're doing a zoning bylaw renewal, which will be a big change, which will need a lot of communication uh, because when you do big change, (laughs) you don't bring people along. That's when frustrations occur. Uh, But there will need to be incremental change after the zoning bylaw too, because nothing anyone does is right 100% on the first time. And I know it'll be hard to do the first incremental change after the zoning bylaw renewal, but it is necessary. Oh, 100%. Are you a perfectionist? I am not. (laughs) I like things to be right. uh, And I don't like to fail for sure. I also know that uh, if you just focus on the perfect, you'll never get there. Uh, And so I'd rather it be mostly right uh, and move forward and then perfect it as as I go along. What about yourself? Yeah. I am. And I don't know if we caught it in the episode or not, but I uh, was talking to Bob. I think it was off air because he's renovating his place right now. Uh, I renovated, this is just a small little anecdote. I renovated a previous condo that I was living in and there's this one little section that just drives me insane. I think I've redone it like three or four times. It's just where the two baseboards around a corner where they meet and it doesn't line up perfectly. And I've redone it about three or four times. But what I should be focusing on is like, you know, the other stuff in my condo. But every single time I'm over there, uh, I redo it. So every time tenants move out, uh, I'm over there like redoing it. And I haven't been able to get it right. And it drives me insane. But that's kind of the thing, right? Like move past that incremental change elsewhere is probably better than just focusing on the one singular issue of getting everything kind of right. Yeah, Ryan, listen to yourself right there. So, but yes, I, I am a perfectionist and it's, uh, but yeah, I agree with you. Incrementalism, we've, we've made a few strides as it relates to commercial uh, development, you know, uh, the no parking, the eliminating minimum parking requirements, that was huge. So we have started to support commercial development a little bit, but yeah, I'm excited for the next roadmap that really takes a hard look at commercial. Yeah, I know um, there's lots of feelings around the removal of parking minimums, but I know for a fact that there is a parking lot on White Ave, which is one of Edmonton's 
main pedestrian friendly uh, streets that is going to be redeveloped into commercial because the building next to it had to leave it as parking because they needed parking even though it sits empty 95% of the time. Yeah. Uh, Not even like partially empty, like empty, empty. (laughs) And so um, the owner and uh, the architect were unbelievably excited that uh, that was removed. And because it wasn't done incrementally uh, with parking uh, only in certain spots, it didn't significantly increase land values, which is really exciting. Um, There's effects on how we do zoning. But anyways, all that to be said, we've talked for a long time. You have places to go. I have a membership, actually, I need to finish filling out for someone. Uh, Someone is excitedly joining Idea. If you don't have your membership with Idea, give me a call. Uh, I can talk to you about your needs and if it fits in with our organization. Uh, Shout out to Adam, who reached out saying he loved the episode with Jason. Man, Jason's getting a lot of love this episode. Um, (laughs) because he loved learning more about Winnipeg uh, and as well as the toolkit. Um, So now we've spent a ton of time together today, Ryan. I know you got to get to public hearing. Yeah, I'm heading off to incrementally change the city and to uh, upzone a uh, parcel of land. So I will talk to you later. See you later. 